Welcome to the Institute for Government. I'm Jill Rutter. I'm a Programme Director for Brexit, but much more importantly, today I am chairing this top conversation. We did have the boring hashtag of hashtag IFG politics. We've, uh, with the agreement of Marie Leconte, uh, our author tonight, who is going to tell us about Westminster gossip, decided that's far too dull. So we have changed it to hashtag IFG gossip. So please join the gossip online. And we're going to hear from Marie and our fantastic panel about her book. I'm plugging the book. I'm plugging the book. Haven't you heard? Uh, which is described by Emily Thorne, we know less, as not just eye-opening, but eye-popping and frequently laugh out loud funny. So I'm raising expectations, raising that bar. An essential read for anyone considering a career in politics and a rollicking good fun for those of us already here. So that's pretty much a recommendation. So we're going to set off with Marie Leconte is going to tell us what's in her book for those of us that haven't read it all yet. Then we are going to have some thoughts from some of the people who are some of the characters that really sort of populate the, uh, the bubble about which Marie is writing. So on my immediate left, we have Matthew O'Toole. Matt was uh, a former civil servant in Number 10 and the Treasury. And it says he's a journalist, but I think he's a PR guy. A mix of both, like lots of people. It's a, I'm a PR guy who occasionally yeah. does journalism. Yeah, OK. okay. Uh, and then we have Tara O'Reilly. Tara is founder of Women in Westminster and coordinator for the Labour Tribune MPs group. And then you will may not realize that the person on my far right is not Lord Wood of Anfield. Lord Wood of Anfield is unfortunately detained doing some of the other things that are going on in Westminster tonight, notably voting on the uh, Ben Bill in the House of Lords on a running three-line whip, and therefore very much regrets that he's not been let off for tonight. Don't know what the whips are thinking of. But anyway, the bill is going to pass anyway, Stuart, yeah, or whatever. <laughs> going to be very weird. Anyway, so we're going to hear from them. Just to introduce Marie, she's a political journalist, freelance. She writes for publications including Prospect Magazine, Guardian, GQ, and The New Statesman. She's appeared on Any Questions, The Today Programme, Newsnight, and many others. So without further ado, Marie, what's in your book? Oh, hi. So I've made absolutely no notes for this because every time I try to sit down and say, OK, think about what I'm going to say, something happened or someone resigned. Um, and then I had to spend 30 minutes on Twitter making jokes. Um, obviously, I had to. Had to. Um, so I'm not entirely sure what I'm going to say. Um, and also, having watched Boris Johnson's speech earlier, I'm no longer full of confidence that I can just wing a speech without notes. Um, <laughs> but, um, but yes, no, I guess... Um, so yeah, I've written a book, which is completely absurd and weird, um, but I guess I have. Um, no, so I, so I guess it kind of started by, so I kind of joined Westminster as a political diarist at the time in 2015, and like I think a lot of people who joined Westminster already kind of was a massive political nerd, and so I sort of arrived and thought, you know, I know what to expect, I know how Westminster works, I know, you know, kind of how everything works, how my job works, etc. And then kind of arriving and making contact with people, making friends with the bubble, et cetera, and starting to do that job. I was like, actually, I had no idea how Westminster really works. So I had no idea how, you know, how much, for example, personal relationships matter, how much actually gossip flows both ways as well. So I think as a political journalist, I kind of expected basically politicians to tell me stuff. Um, and it turns out that actually a lot of your job as a journalist is telling MPs a lot of stuff. Like you call them, and you're like, what have you heard about this? And they're like, I've not heard anything. Can you tell me what you know? <laughs> Um, it's like for the love of God. Um, 
But anyway, so, you know, it turns out it kind of works in a way that I'd not quite expected, in which I think I'd not really seen from reading sort of like political coverage of Westminster, from reading books about it or anything. So the idea behind Haven't You Heard was to kind of try and bring this knowledge of kind of, I guess, the informal um, side of Westminster into broader public knowledge, especially at a time when clearly people care about politics. They hate most politicians and journalists, I think. Um, but also don't necessarily understand everything that goes on. So I think having a greater level of kind of understanding of saying, look, this is how it works. And I'm not making a moral judgment um, in the book or a case for or against the way the bubble works. was kind of saying, look, this is kind of how it works. Um, and also it's quite broken a lot of the time and everyone's very neurotic and weird, but also they're just at the end of the day, a group of people who just behave the way people do. And so... There's only so much, I think, because there's occasionally conversations of how to, how to change politics, how to professionalise politics, or make sure that the lobby... Oh, hello. <laughs> um, you know, how to make sure polit uh, political journalism reflects the way politics was better, etc., etc. But I do think that at the end of the day, you can only change the way people do things and interact with each other to an extent. And, you know, th there's no sort of, like, great reforms I think you could kind of undertake to make politics sort of like very professionalised and gossip wouldn't matter and who you are wouldn't matter at all because at the end of the day people are people. Um, and yes, yeah, so I think that's kind of why I decided to write the book but also because I was really tired of writing about Brexit day in day out and so I thought that if someone could give me money to do something else for six months um, then I would. Uh, and, and yeah, and, and it was a really enjoyable process actually um, and I was lucky enough to get to interview so 84 people in the end. Um, so anyone from like, peers and MPs, advisors, civil servants, um, quite a few people on this panel, actually. Um, and it was really, really interesting. I feel like I learned a lot as well doing it. So I really hope you enjoy it. So what was the most surprising thing? You've sort of started out, you've come in as a bit of a neophyte, Marie. You don't know very much what's going on. What really did you think? You know, Emily Thornbury told us it's eye-popping, so give us something eye-popping. <laughs> Jesus Christ, I mean, I wrote the book ages ago. can't remember what's in it. Um, it's here, it's here. So it's it's it here. Can I just, yeah. Um, that's a good question. But actually, you know, one of the things, at least for me, was kind of the fact that... Um, so I just got surprised by my own mic there. Um, was actually the fact that I think information flows in a way I'd kind of underestimated. So again, I kind of thought that I had... I guess, a sense of knowledge that obviously you were quite embedded within Westminster as a journalist, mm. but I not quite realised how much you participate in the way sort of like gossip turns around and the fact that, you know, you'll hear something and then you'll talk to, let's say, yeah, taking the example of MPs. But mm. annoyingly so in the book, um, if you read it, you'll see it, it was very annoying. Um, to the example I use to try and explain how uh, information sort of like travels around, even when it's not really something that's necessarily true about to happen, is um, the idea of a new centrist party, which at the time was kind of a running joke um, of something that would never happen. Um, so I've had to add a lot of footnotes <laughs> because obviously Change UK and the independence, etc., ended up happening. Um, but yeah, so I think that for me, yeah, the biggest thing was actually the fact that as a journalist, you're definitely part of an item. And also, I think as a wider thing, there is a sense that people tell you things for a reason and you're kind of being used as a weapon in sort of like factual wars and wars between parties, etc., which I had not quite realised beforehand, I guess. Okay, let's just get some perspectives from our panel, and then we're going to uh, have a bit of a chat, but also have your questions and comments and thoughts and whatever. Uh, where am I going to go? Matt, you've been on the inside in, in number 10. Were you there sort of trying to shut down gossip? We've uh, heard about Dominic Cummings sort of hauling in spads and an incredibly well-reported uh, meeting every Friday evening to issue them their orders and tell them not to leak anything so that he can leak it all yeah, Indeed. unchallenged. Yeah. Um, 
What, uh, what did you, what strikes you about Westminster gossip and the bubble? Well, I think, first of all, obviously everyone going by this book, uh, I think Marie's perspective on this is always, both on Twitter and in her journalism, very, very fresh. Um, I think there are two uh, things that are really striking about the way the Whitehall Westminster bubble works, and I will come on to the question about number 10 and Don Cummings, Jill. Um, but weirdly, in a sense, it's like two-part, I think. Well, it's obviously many more than two-part, but two things, two particular qualities that strike me are one, the kind of strangely closed world of political journalism in SW1 and the lobby system. Uh, how that, um, Marie touched on it a little bit there, how that system of distributing information to a, um, in a closed order, basically, of journalists who have, a privilege, who have privileged access to number 10, in a sense, privileged access to the Palace of Westminster, how that um, is, I think, fairly unique to most um, modern democracies in terms of how information is given to them and how they participate in the system that creates gossip, it creates other dynamics, it mm. helps to shape the way information gets out to the public, even with social media mm. and even with 24-hour rolling news. Um, uh, and, then, and then there's a whole world in which you know, the kind of lots of in-jokes, pop culture references, mm. a, slight, you know, a slightly kind of British or English glibness kind of informs the way those interactions happen. So that's really interesting, I think, and distinctive, and I'm not saying that it's good, bad, or indifferent, but you know, you can draw your conclusions about how it's played out in the Brexit thing. Um, the second thing I think that's really interesting in terms of gossip, um, and I was one of the people who spoke to Marie, I think as a former civil servant by the time you, mm -hmm. um, I can say, uh, um, is the fact that while you have the, the political class, you political journalists and the political and politicians talking a lot among one another and talking indiscreetly occasionally. And the strange quality of this entire, um, you know, I think, how many civil servants work in and around Whitehall? Tens of thousands, I, yeah. I presume. It's bizarre how little, how little stuff actually leaks from civil servants. So I think one of the weirdly unique things about the UK is how unbelievably unleaky the civil service is. I think that's one of the things that for civil servants, whether you work in comms like I did or whether you are um, uh, and as Jill did for a time, as well as policy, or mm. your former statistician, mm. as Jonathan Portis was, or, or, or whatever, um, it's actually surprising how little information gets out directly from civil servants doing their jobs to the media, despite the fact that they go to the same pubs, and Marie talks about them <laughs> in her book. You know, loads very of civil good, servants. Very useful list of pubs. Very useful <laughs> list of pubs. If you're in the Red Lion or the Old Star mm. or wherever, St. Stephen's Tavern's obviously very touristy, um, but wherever it is, and there may be civil servants in the room tonight serving civil servants. It's a remarkable thing that so little information about the day job from, day, from working civil servants gets out, and I think that's remarkably underreported. And it's to come back to the point about you know the current number ten and just the general sense that that you know people are going to be uh, hung, drawn, and quartered if they leak. Actually, generally, civil servants rarely do leak. I think that's a little bit to do with the. You know the, the the you know the qualities that are drummed into civil servants and the sense of impartiality, but also actually there's very little career incentive for them to 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 um, to give something to uh, a lobby journalist, whether it's for a political playbook or the Sun. Actually, their careers aren't structured in a way that that, that if they're going to stay remain civil mm. servants, then it's particularly useful. So I think those are two things that are particularly distinctive mm. about the UK system. One, the weirdness of the lobby and how that <laughs> reinforces in the, pal the palace of Westminster. But two, the oddness of the fact that. 
there are tens of thousands of civil servants who are not leaking. And what, and, about, and what about number 10? Can you tell us about number 10? Well, I think I mean, number 10 is really strange. The, the number 10 operation is always odd in the sense that it is the only government department. I know it's technically not a freestanding government department. It's a part of the cabinet office, but it's basically its own department. It's the only place where you have anywhere close to parity between civil servants and special advisors. You're, in, you're working in... When you're a civil servant in number 10, you are very close to mm. politics. It's, it's difficult not to, you're pretty near the knuckle. Mm. That's not to say you're, you're doing mm. party political stuff, but it's that by definition harder to assert the line. Um, you know, I did go through uh, in the previous regime, uh, I went through a couple of leak inquiries, and it's mm. not fun to have your phone seized and have cops interview you and have, you know, be, mm. be told that you're, you know, be had the, a couple of times were completely spurious things when it was fairly obvious that. No, no civil servant had been involved in leaking, and um, so there's a there's a kind of performative quality yeah. sometimes about uh, about you know allegations about leaking and about you know certain people trying to assert authority and trying to to be um, to be look strong in kind of performative ways, and and it's not always terribly helpful to the operation of government. Um, uh, but, but you know the number ten operation is um, maybe I'll leave it at that. Okay. <laughs> we'll come back to Daryl. We'll come back to you. Maybe we'll come back to you after a few drinks outside. Yeah. Anyway, Tara, I'm, I'm quite interested in some of the stuff that Marie has in this, particularly her bits about um, about Parliament, which suggests actually that some of the ways in which this sort of gossip and networking work in Parliament actually makes it quite a difficult environment for women, particularly younger women, yep. to work. And I thought it was really quite an interesting sort of area that there are these networks, particularly the bars, where you know men would go and all things, but actually you didn't want to be seen there too much if you're a woman. And you know, it was sort of a bit dodgy. I don't know whether you've got any thoughts about whether this, you know, something that trades so much on gossip networks and stuff like that actually is fundamentally a bit sexist? Oh, it's majorly sexist. <laughs> um, like when you become a staffer for an MP, I've been there for about three years now, you, you do your security clearance, you get your pass, you're given an email and you're kind of just like dropped in and you sink or you swim. And especially when you're a young woman, um, like there are books out there, I think there's one book, the How to Be a Researcher and Work for MP, there are a few resources out there, but for the most part, um, working for a politician is learning on the job. So you then end up relying on the relationships you build. And so most of my closest confidants are, you know, women I've met in the toilets who need a little bit of like hype manning because they've had a tough day with their boss, or it's going to the strangers bar or sports and social and someone coming up to me when I'm having a drink with someone, normally, you know, a man, and them saying, you probably shouldn't hang out with that guy, like, he's a bit creepy, he's got a reputation, and then a friendship blossoms, because that person has actually saved me from a, you know, a really creepy man who, without any, like, I wouldn't have known that, you know, that person wasn't someone I should be spending time with. Um, and then, you know, you'll have people slide into your DMs on Twitter because they're trying to guess who, you, who you're subtweeting and actually nine times out of ten, they have got the person right because they know, they recognise, you know, the behaviours you're, you're talking about. Um, so you end up with this culture among staffers where um, a lot of our relationships are built on gossip and not just, you know, who's sleeping with who or who's you know done something weird in a meeting it's also about protecting each other um and like with the me too movement when that hit westminster that was only it only really came to light because of the 
because of the gossip and because of the conversations that happened over coffees and you know in the toilets and at bars between between women basically um, and yeah the I don't know we we all love to gossip in Westminster and especially staffers because it's such a thankless job um, and it's enjoyable but um, I think a lot of the time it is about we are gossiping to and sharing information with each other to you know look out for one another and and that's why a group of us set up um, women in Westminster a few months ago because we realized there wasn't anything that connected you know a young Labour staffer like me with young Tory women or young Lib Dems um, and now we, I know all the gossip about Tory MPs because they tell me that, and they know all the Labour gossip, which is great fun. It's nice to not be gossiping about Labour all the time. Um, but yeah, gossiping is a, a fundamental part of working in Parliament, and it and it is sexist as well because you have to um, put yourself in situations like going to bars and you know having coffees with people who you might not normally want to hang out with just to be in the know because the relationships you build aren't just it's not just for fun it's also your political and your career capital so yeah and Duncan just uh, do you think it's actually good for government that there's this sort of you know incestuous relationship or you know Marie was telling us about this sort of two-way flow mm. bit of a dependency politician a bit of a suggestion I think in Marie's book I think she gives the example of Tessa Jowell who sort of avoided criticism because everybody just thought she was basically very nice and um, Tessa Jowell was very nice uh, I don't mm. want to say she's not very nice but you know this sort of dependence between uh, politicians and journalists or sort of you know co-creating the product or whatever you saw it maybe at his apogee with people like uh, Alistair Campbell, mm. Pride and people like that, dependency culture. I mean, is that actually a sort of joint conspiracy against the public and the public interest? <laughs> Just to throw something in? Yeah, yeah, you can come in too. I think what is striking is that, as Matthew said, there is this sort of chokehold on information mm. that exists in, in the sort of Westminster Whitehall system that doesn't exist in uh, other countries in Europe. So I, I used to be the Brussels correspondent for the Financial Times. And the metaphor I always use is like being in Brussels and journalists is like being in an orchard. There's just these big juicy stories just lying <laughs> on trees and you just wander around and sort of pick them off. And, and it's fine because you're not you, like the French journalists aren't so interested in British stories because they're having a weird tomato row with Spain and it, and so you, you've sort of got it to yourself. And also, there's so many different avenues from which you can get the story. You can try and speak to the Commission, then you can go around the individual member states. You can speak to random MEPs. So there's about 30 different ways you can you can set up a story. Whereas in in Westminster, if, especially if you're in the lobby, you're you're very very reliant on on a very centralised body. And as Matthew said, Whitehall tends not to leak, which again, compared to the European Commission, is very, very different. <laughs> um, so although it, it, is, it is quite incestuous, it's, it's odd that more doesn't come out of it for, for, from that point of view. And you, you saw that during the Brexit negotiations. The British government genuinely believed it could sort of keep its hand like, close to its chest, which, which it, it, you can't do when the other side is literally sharing every single bit of paper with, with 30 or 40 different people who just have a culture of dealing with journalists who are just being far more open. Like if you speak to Dutch or Scandinavian mm. officials, they're sort of pathologically honest. Mm. <laughs> and it's, and it's, a, it's, just a, it's a very, very different attitude. They see themselves as sort of allies of journalists because they both obviously want to get to the truth. And so therefore, why, why wouldn't we work together? Or why wouldn't I help you get this document? And, and that, <laughs> that attitude <laughs> does not exist uh, in the UK.
All right. Which is not so much pathologically, yeah. um, pathologically secretive, maybe. Yeah. yeah. Whatever. Yeah. And, uh, if you, whenever you go mm. to, um, if you've ever been at a European Council, and obviously we have a big European Council uh, coming up in just over a month's time. Um, if you go into the big hall in the Justus Lipsius building, I'm sure Duncan spent many, mm. um, spent hours many there. happy hours. The, in, in, you, you'll see it when, during the European mm. Council. Whenever there's a, they do lives. The TV do lives mm. from the. The sort of platform and looking down on the, on the press hall, which is connected to the big new building, the Europa building, where they mm. do the, the actual meeting. Anyway, um, the individual country journalists will tend to sit on their own banks of desks, and the Brits will all sit on one desk. And you know, the kind of number 10 approach is generally to go and brief the Brits in a slightly more, and that's by the way, long predates Brexit. That's not, and it's not particularly a kind of like a reflection mm. on, on, on Brexit or, or, or even the current administration. Um, we actually haven't had a European Council yet, um, but you know, there's this kind of number ten goes down, and you brief the lobby who are, who have mm. trapped usually the mm. travelling lobby who are there, rather than the Brussels correspondents. If you, and then what tends to happen is the Dutch journalists or the Maltese journalists or the Irish journalists will hear will kind of uh, sort of wander over and like and listen to that. And there's much more. The rest of the thing is just so much more open, and information is just sort of parried round, whereas. There's a much more quality here of it being like gather round, you're in the secret circle. I'm going to tell you something. Marie, you wanted to come in on uh, yes. incestuous relationships. Well, I did, no, because I not. think. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> cool, yeah. Uh, no, so I guess what I wanted to say um, is to yeah, come back to your original question. Um, and, and it's all, I mean, that bit mm. is all in the book. Um, but I think what I find really interesting is when people say, and obviously journalists are too close to politicians, and that's why you know they may not write certain stories. Mm. With the Tessa mm. Jowell um, example in the book, it was talk mm. from talking mm. to multiple lobby journalists who were kind of around at the time. And I think it's not just that. Like, from the outside, it's quite easy to see it mm. as like you know straightforward. Well, you know, MP X mm. is my friend. Mm. Um, therefore, if he's done something bad, I may not write about it. But I don't, and, and, and I'm sure mm. that may happen. But I think it's a bit more complicated than that a lot of the time. So the example one journalist gave actually. Um, and I normally can't remember the name of the MP, the Tory minister who was caught sexting women last year. Oh, um, Brooks, whatever. Uh, Andrew Griffiths. Oh, um, so remember, yeah. Oh, right. Um, but anyway, so it's kind of like that was. How many were there? <laughs> <laughs> um, it was around the time of that story. Um, so it's kind of obviously like uh, coloring the conversation. I was talking to this lovely journalist who said, it's not, you know, what we mostly learn from that is that no one seems to like him very much because, you know, everyone kind of piled in, no one tried to explain what was going on. Obviously, the story was slightly weird because we never got uh, the woman's side of the story, like the woman's side of the text, etc. Um, and, you know, that journalist was like, it's actually, the problem is not, you know, what we write, decide to write, we decide not to write, but it's also how we feel about someone. So I think the example he gave was Tom Tugendhat said, you know, let's say Tom Tugendhat, all the journalists basically like him because he's good fun mm. and, you know, likes talking to us and is interesting. If he were to do something bad, mm. um, you know, would we, would we not have a moan saying, oh, but, you know, try to be understanding the same way that you would be of a friend saying, oh, but, you know, maybe he's going through a rough patch or maybe, you know, maybe there's, there's a reason why he did that or something. So I think, you know, the same way I think, in any friendship or any professional relationship, if you like someone, you're a lot more likely to make excuses for them or maybe say, oh, actually, that bad thing they did, was it really so bad? Was it such a massive thing? So I think it's not all kind of conspiracy level, I like eggs, therefore I'm not going to write about them, is mm. I think that it's also part of you excuse people so more readily. Do you think suffer if, I mean, one of the comments we used to make about Theresa May, uh, who used to be Prime Minister, if you can remember, <laughs> uh, back to seven weeks ago. Um, 
was that she actually wasn't very good at, I mean, she wasn't very clubbable, I suppose is the mm. word. You've got a bit about, it's sort of quite male, it's quite public school, it's easier to sort of create a network if you've already come in with the one that you were basically brought into at age five in your prep school or whatever, that she didn't have that sort of, uh, sort of thing, that she probably didn't hang out with journalists and do that sort of just chatting and chewing the fat a bit mm. and stuff. Is that, a, is that an essential skill to be, uh, to be basically a politician? I mean, can you really, really succeed today if you're actually a, a politician who really what? just doesn't like gossiping with other people. You know, I think both, like, um, Theresa May did manage to become Prime Minister, so I think it can work to an extent. Mm. And Jeremy Corbyn, I guess, you know, has a similar sort of, like, non-existing mm. relationship with mm. journalists. So I think you can certainly rise through the ranks as an MP, I think, if you don't necessarily really like gossip mm. and kind of those fun, mm. like, informal, interpersonal relationships, where it's kind of like playing politics on hard mode. Um, so, and the same mm. way would be, I think, for a journalist, if you can either sort of, you know, go drinking quite a lot, mm. get to know lots of people, mm. so you can, you know, text people if you hear something. Uh, or you can, I mean, I guess, you know, you can probably fire off like 1,000 FOIs and read every white and green paper mm. and whatever. And, you know, both bits would probably get the same amount of stories. But one is a lot more work, uh, which is why I personally do the former. <laughs> but, um, no, but on a more serious note, I think that I think it is definitely possible. Um, and as we're kind of, you know, seeing with Boris at the moment, the fact that both he and Carrie are quite close to journalists, now that's not going to save them. Um, mm. at this stage, you know, I'm not sure anything can. So I think it definitely helps. Mm. Um, but no, actually the way, what was it? One, and annoyingly that can make it into the book, because um, I just had too many like, great mm. quotes. But um, so this former spad uh, explained it that way. She was like, um, gossip is a great thing to use occasionally, you know, on top of mm. everything else. If you've got, you know, several sort of like weapons mm. at your disposal, obviously gossip should be one of them. Mm. But she was like, no, basically if you just use gossip, it's just like, you know, basically using a segue um, and his thing, if you think you're going quite fast mm. and everyone thinks you're looking like a moron because they can see what you're doing and you mm. will fall off a cliff. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's have, some, let's have some comments and questions. We've got to speak from the audience. We have some roving mics. We have Maddie and Aaron who will take questions. If anyone's next door and wants to duck in their head in or whatever, let's go. I'll take them in back. There are lots of questions that go. Aaron, no. Thank you. Good evening. I'm Sabine Arnaud, French journalist. So I've been journalist in Brussels and Berlin and in Paris. So what you describe from Brussels is very unique. And one, what you describe about London is very similar to Paris and Berlin. Because it's human being, I think. Maybe with some uh, specific things like uh, um, your parliament being so small that no uh, foreign journalist can get in. And um, I think one of the aspects I would ask you about is more respect of uh, private life. Yeah. That's because we have uh, red lines that are not supposed to be the same ones as a British journalist. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry, I was Great. just like, oh, <laughs> a topic so you're I feel strongly about. Um, no, I find that super interesting. I'm French as well and grew up in France and everything. Yeah. So I find it very, very weird, like the amount of stories um, people sort of get away with here. But also I think, yeah, it's a difference. For like, a, I think there's a belief of saying that if you're in the public, in public life, everything's basically fair game. Um, but also I think it's quite linked to the tabloid culture thing of kind of saying, you know, if you're in public life, if you do anything that's kind of untowards and, you know, in non-family sort of like man-like, then you deserve to be outed so the voters, you know, can know what you're like. Um, but I think more fundamentally, it's kind of a difference 
like a quite fundamental difference in how the British press and the French press see like see themselves and see their purpose in life. So I think that in France, especially kind of looking at it, uh, French journalists do tend to be quite quite worthy and quite. I think there is a sense of you know we're here to chronicle history and chronicle what happens. Like it, that, whereas I think that in Britain, especially tabloids, there's a sense of you know they're just kind of doing it to have fun. Like especially you know the, the Sun is just here to have a good time. Like basically, um, and you know, and several Sun journalists I interviewed basically mm. agreed with that. And so, see, I'm kind of trying to shoehorn one of my favourite anecdotes, um, which is away. that. Um, uh, which is from the Sun, actually, because I was trying to learn this bit in the book where I tried to explain public interest and the fact that actually a lot mm. of British journalists effectively, you know, can bend the rules of what is in the public interest and what isn't. If there's something they really want to publish, they will find some way to say, well, haha, actually, you know, this is why I was in the public interest. Um, and my absolute favourite example was uh, so Simon Danshuk, um, the former MP, was having, was sleeping with this woman who was like 19 or 20 or whatever, and the Sun did a big story on it. Um, but actually, if you looked at it quite closely, he was single because he'd separated from his partner. It was a consensual relationship. The woman was not underage or anything, so there was nothing there for it to be in the public interest. But they apparently once had sex in his constituency office, which is paid for by the taxpayer. <laughs> <laughs> and taxpayers deserve to know how their money is spent, which is just brilliant. It's brilliant. Um, and, and, and you can tell that whoever came up with that in the newsroom was really happy and really just like, well, there you go. You know, there's that all security risk is always like a good favourite of publishing. So if anyone, so I think it was when Dominic mm. Raab's um, advisor was a sugar baby, I think, on the side. By the way, in the book, there is a footnote explaining what a sugar baby is, which I think is a first book about politics. Uh, I'm very happy with that. Um, you know, so it was kind of, you know, selling effectively sexual services on the side. Um, and I can't remember which paper did it first, but basically their thing was like, well, you know, it is a potential national security risk if someone were to blackmail her. And it's like, bollocks, bollocks. You just wanted to print that because it was a story about sex and politics. Um, so, yeah, so I think that basically British journalists are more open to the idea of just kind of having fun and being, you know, gotcha. is the gotcha culture, which I think France definitely doesn't have and other countries don't really have either, or so, not to the same extent. So, Charles, do you see part of your role as sort of promoting the sort of, you know public image of your um, making them sort of interesting or have you had to sort of you know ward off you know unpleasant uh, stories that journalists are saying are in the public interest or, um, or um, not yet um yeah lucky enough to have not had to do that but many of my friends have who work for mps um yeah there is a lot of it, i think it's hard because i think a lot of people get into politics and work for politicians because they've got really strong political views and they you know, want to stand up for what they think is right. And I think sometimes they, we find it difficult when our politician who we believe in, we have breakfast, lunch and sometimes dinner with, we are with all the time, we're texting, we're calling, you know, we're their best friend, we're absolutely everything to them. Um, when they do something we disagree with, Politically, it's like, okay, sure, that's fine, I can, I can forgive it, I'll forgive you. But when it's something that you morally disagree with, um, staffers do find that really tough. And I know many staffers who, or former staffers, who have left their jobs because actually they, they can't um, stand up and, you know, hide a MP's affair or, you know, harassment or bullying. And Duncan, I mean, is Brussels, as you said you worked in Brussels, is are all these high-minded journalists in Brussels not interested? I mean, we get a bit about Jean-Claude Juncker and how drunk is he or whatever, but basically mm. is, there, is there sort of zero interest among the continental journalists well, and the 
Interesting. With the younger thing, it was the British tabloids who really, really went went for that story to the point where it sort of slightly poisoned the relationship there. Um, there's, there's lots of salacious gossip that goes on, but as far as I can tell, not as much of it ends up going anywhere. And I think also it's just the the, the, the levels of interest is, is slightly lower. So MEP, particularly in Britain, but lots of countries in Eastern Europe, so lots of people can't really name their, their, their MEPs and things like that. So if I came across some salacious thing involving yeah. some MP, like most people haven't heard of most MPs, yeah. and even few have heard of, heard of MEPs, so there wasn't just the sort of demand for it either. So the more interesting is sort of expenses and stuff like that, I suppose, which mm. is things. I mean, actually, Marie, on expenses, you've got a sort of thing where uh, I'm told by my very excellent, uh, excellent assistant that you've got an example of Chris Bryant saying that the uh, expenses scandal was sort of really a gossip story, but was must was sort of masters of public interest story, yeah. Uh, yes, no, that was really interesting, actually, because I interviewed, I think it was Chris Bryant and Greg Hans as well, so both MPs mm. I interviewed, and they brought up the expenses scandal unprompted mm. as an example of basically, like, gossip and kind of, like, basically political journalism being gossip, mm. which I thought was really interesting because I'd never really seen it mm. as that. And I did put it to one of the journalists who worked on the expenses scandal, who was not thrilled um, with their kind of view mm. of, uh, of the scandal. but. I actually think, talking to other people and kind of having a think about it, they did have a point in the sense that um, if, you, if you were to, I think, come through and look through like, every MP, what they did, you know, what expenses they mm. fiddled, etc., mm. and what punishment they got for mm. it, there was no proper reasoning. It was very much a case of actually, you know, who's popular, who's in with the leadership team at that point, who's got stuff probably coming out on them anyway, mm. or, you know, or even actually, because mm. I remember who made that argument, um, but saying that you know some people actually flipped their houses etc or like did some really dodgy stuff with expenses mm. but it was really really boring so mm. they got away with it it was just something where you know you actually kind of had to know what you were talking so the duck about house is much and, more interesting you know exactly than, yeah duck pond yeah. guy who who forgets duck yeah who can forget duck pond guy or I can remember who bought a pink laptop I think and I was here and was that a man buying mm. a pink laptop and you know and people remembered that so I think in that sense I think the argument Chris and Greg were trying to make was that actually it was gossip because it was it was about personal mm. you know the personal oh Jackie um, Smith had to resign because her husband mm. no exactly and so it, it was you know it was very much the personal yeah. and actually the kind of it was titillating it was yeah. covered in a titillating way um, it's a risk of being a politician in Britain um, Aaron Jonathan here and yeah. Hi, I'm um, uh, Jonathan Portis from King's. Um, question, you know, how uh, does this matter in a sense, sorry, I'm not meaning to denigrate the, the, the lives of everybody in this room who's part of the bubble, but um, people gossip uh, and it's fun and it's fun to read about, but how does this actually affect outcomes? And I mean, the most obvious way for those of us who've both been in the Whitehall policy world and now are in the sort of analysis commenting mm. world and are spoken mm. to by journalists the most you know the sort of frustration we get I think both both of those groups that I have belonged to is when from our perspective it looks like the gossip is driving out the analysis in the way that it's presented to the public and it's really quite noticeable uh, no offense to any political correspondents here mm. um, when uh, um, when a story switches from being the preserve of the health correspondent or the biotech correspondent who generally knows what they're talking about to being a political argument and then you get no offense to Laura Koonsberg but you get it presented as basically not quite gossip but it is basically gossip it's a story about 
who wants what, who's maneuvering what, and so on. And I guess the question is, is that inevitable? Is it damaging? Is it what people want? Is there a better way of doing it? I don't know the answers to any okay. of those questions. Matt, would we be better government without the lobby, I think? So if newspapers were all sort of very worthy, you know, full of very well-informed, specialists were basically just the FT, uh, which would make sort of treasury officials and people like that very happy, and nothing was refracted through the who's up, who's down, uh, you know, what's this doing in terms of manoeuvring, yeah. you know, Tim Shipman didn't exist, uh, whatever, so would we be better government uh, that? We'll get on to you in a second. Anyway, Matt. I think it's a really good question, and I think it's, uh, and I think, um, I, I don't know the answer, but I, this is a, 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 a hedging my bets answer. <laughs> I don't know the answer, but I think it's really worth discussing. And I think Jonathan's question is actually a really, uh, it's a legitimate one in the sense I think um, actually gossip is really important in terms, and I think in terms of understanding how, um, how outcomes happen, like look, the UK is doing the most momentous thing it has done in peacetime or in any of our lifetime. Well, not in any of our lifetimes, obviously. I don't know if some people were here during the Second World War. Um, but you do. Know, I'm not that old. Say, anyway. No, no, no. Obviously, <laughs> not sure. Um, since the Second World War, it's the most momentous oh, thing. Right, okay. It's the most momentous thing that's happened since the, since the Second World War. Um, given the way, given that information has been, how we analyze and interpret information has been completely critical to Brexit because Brexit was, first of all, a campaign. It was a campaign about how people interpreted information and received, uh, sorry to get very kind of like pseudo-academic, um, uh, it is completely important, it's, it's completely critical to understand how information is distributed within Westminster, within among people who are in the, the, the priestly tribe of um, civil servants, politicians and journalists who um, communicate about policy and politics to the rest of the civilization. So it's really, really important. Now, to get onto the specific meat of the question, um, do I think, I think it would be better if policy and information was, government policy and politics was communicated in a slightly more open way. I think gossip is vital, vital critical, inherent to politics everywhere, clearly, and it's part of the tradecraft of politics, whether whether lobby briefings and journalist briefings are on camera or not. Mm. That being said, I think the UK probably does suffer from um, a slightly medieval, uh, unwritten kind of way of communicating information to, to, to journalists. And the UK has lots of amazing political journalists, and I think you do. So um, um, that's not really a about the individual quality of the media. I think there is a structural question, though, about how information gets out of Westminster to the rest of the public. For example, you know, and you know, to give another, to give an example, actually, uh, sort of touches on what Jonathan asked there. You know, there is a, you know, this is more about how media interact with government, but um, the lobby tend to dominate how policy is communicated to the outside world. It's, mm -hmm. I, I mean, I, I don't know because I left government a year or two ago, but it's obviously still the Department of Health. Mm interact with health correspondents and national newspapers and broadcasters and the education department and the home, of, you know, home office and justice to the home affairs people. So that still happens. But if there's a big political, if there's a big announcement about something, it is more often than not. If it comes from number 10, it'll go to the lobby. Mm -hmm. And so it'll be framed and refracted through that um, lens. That's not directly about gossip, but it is, I think there is a, a, an important question about how stuff is framed and discussed. I haven't answered that question exactly as I would have liked, but the answer is yes, it's really important. I think we need to keep debating it, particularly post-Brexit. So Marie, is the lobby a force for 
Oh, and I wrote a piece last year calling for the abolition of the lobby. So I think I, I'm quite, um, quite straightforward on that. I'm not sure. No, I mean, that, that piece was quite fun to write. But I do think one of the problems, I do kind of agree with you, I think mm. one of the problems is that, broadly speaking, the media has no money anymore. So I think in an ideal world, you would have kind of correspondence yeah. with mm. a policy area mm. each, or you know, at least covering two or three policy mm. areas each. Um, but the fact is that, you know, there's no money in newspapers anymore. And actually what does happen is that, um, you know, that there'll be, I don't know, you know, some, some scandal at education or whatever, and suddenly every lobby journalist is like, hello, you know, I'm an education specialist now, so this cool funding thing. And then, you know, and it's, it becomes much easier to spin stuff to them because obviously yeah. they have no idea. And that's part of the reason why um, I, I just do features in my corner now because I can't really do this. I can't really pretend to be like, oh, yes, you yeah. know, defence. I know things about weapons. I can name several. Um, <laughs> but... Um, Oh, no, so I think, yeah, it's basically, on quite a basic thing, a media funding problem. It's also a wider media thing. Of, and, and politics is not the only area where that happens. Where, but the public doesn't read serious political stories about policy. And we didn't know that until quite recently because people just bought an entire paper. Yeah. Um, and now we know exactly which bit of the papers they read. Um, and it's not that. Um, you know, and I've seen that because I, yeah, I have done it when I was, you know, working at BuzzFeed and the amount of stuff I wrote, which I thought was quite interesting and incisive and, you know, and actually about policy work, etc. No one read it. No one. Um, and, and the media can't really justify that. So I think it is um, partly the fault of the public. Um, <laughs> okay. Public, if you're watching, it's, yes. uh, <laughs> it's your fault. Tara, do you, do you have much to do with Bobby, where you are in... My mic, everyone, don't worry. <laughs> not to be alarmed, but it's not a female police constable. Maybe. All right, okay. That was, uh, if you weren't watching Boris Johnson's speech earlier, that was an obscure <laughs> reference from Matt. Um, do, you have much to, do you have much to do with the lobbyists? Sort of, uh, yeah, most... Or do you steer well clear? Most staffers do, um, if you work in Parliament. Um, I mean, some do, some don't. But, um, yeah, a lot of the job of being a parliamentary staffer is, you know, putting out press releases or, you know, speaking to the lobby, speaking to people like Duncan, about um, you know, what our MP thinks or is going to do. Um, but it is a constant complaint I hear from MPs that the lobby just operates as like one bubble. And you do kind of see it when, um, no offence again, like when you go on Twitter and something comes out, like Laura Kay tweets it, and then every single person is like tweeting it after that. And... Um, when MPs log on and see that, they're like, oh, like you know, the lobby's just the same. The lobby can't work with the lobby, and so um, there is this weird kind of, um, I don't know, rift I think between politicians and and the lobby, and our staffers kind of get stuck in the middle. So no one, of course, can make Jonathan's accusation against the economist. Yes, we're, 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 we're very very serious. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Uh, the part of the problem is that, that, that political correspondents are very, very sort of defensive of their patch. Like, uh, I think it, it could be easily solved by just allowing, wh when those big stories mm -hmm. in a certain policy area do break, uh, just allowing correspondents into the lobby to try and pin down Downing Street on certain topics. Mm -hmm. I think that would be quite an easy thing to do. But the other thing is that I, there could just be a culture shift in Whitehall of being more open with journalists. Like, we're, we're, the economists are lucky now. We still have sectoral specialists. We've got a health person. We've got a, we've got a crime person. We're, we've still got those specialists. But it is like getting blood from a stone sometimes. Like they're extremely defensive. Maybe because they're they're sort of like like once bitten twice shy because they've had this non-expert come in and just trample everywhere. Mm. Um, but the, yeah, I think there does need to be a, a mentality shift. Uh, but who's it interested in? I mean, frankly, if I'm a minister doing 
maybe the public, but if I'm sitting over there, it's hugely easier to feed some lines to some lobby journalist who's just going to sort of take it rather than say, oh, 14 billion for education. Well, that only looks like 3 billion That's a, a year number. to me because you've, uh, you've added up quite a lot of years and actually if you'd added up quite a lot more years, you'd have got an even bigger number. I mean, it's much easier just to feed these uh, top lines to slightly undercritical political correspondence. Oh, no, I, I don't doubt it's in the it's in the politicians interest to to have that but uh, I think that uh, is it necessarily in, in Whitehall's interest to, to sort of have these big numbers spun out and then then voters land line sort of thinking oh why, why isn't my school better is it, oh because the money didn't actually exist because it was just rebadged from something else. Right interesting 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 let's go to the back there Maddie Daniel and then we'll come here yeah. Um, Daniel Thornton from ARC. Um, I think sociologists say that uh, gossip can help uh, enforce social norms at the risk of getting a bit academic. I think, Tara, what you were saying uh, sort of touched on that with, with Me Too and the reporting of harassment and, and bullying in, in the Commons. I don't know if the other panellists see that in, in, the, in the gossip that they participate in. Is it, is it about norms or is it about other stuff? Marie. I do actually sort of have a ready-made answer for that, which is that um, I sort of have a slightly bold thesis in one of the chapters, which is that Guido Fawkes has had a positive influence on Westminster. Um, but, you know, which I'm not, I'm not entirely sure is true, but I guess my thinking, and in talking yeah. to people who have worked for Guido yeah. Fawkes and for other people, it is the case of, you know, what Guido did is that it, they came in and they said, you know, there is no story too small for us, there's no, you know, there's nowhere to hide for you because... As a, let's say, staffer, junior journalist, whatever, you would normally think, well, no one knows who I am. It's not in the public interest or anything about me if I get too drunk or whatever. Whereas Guido sort of came in and said, you know, like, everyone's fair game. Everything's fair game, because as long as we get clicks from within SW1, then, you know, it's fine for us. Um, rightly or wrongly. But I do think that there was a slight sort of, like, panopticon effect um, that kind of uh, took an after, like, after a while, because basically people said, oh, actually, you know, I could get written about. And some people did get written about, most of them kind of, unfairly um, and actually interviewing someone who's worked for Guido they said that one story they used to always do was um, shame MPs who would claim expenses for very very small things so you know the kind of like one carton of juice for 67 pence they put that under expenses etc and he was saying actually you know since we, like, we started doing that and we kept doing it for a while and after a while MPs just stopped doing it because they clearly knew they were about to get shamed and they kind of stopped submitting those tiny expenses so I think in a weird way and I think Guido this is not to say Guido is good in any way. I just think it's had an inadvert inadvertent, sorry, positive um, impact on Westminster because, again, I think social norms um, have been affected by it because people can't quite behave in the way that they thought they could. And Tara, I'm quite interested in you. We were talking about earlier about Me Too affecting mm. Westminster. One of my colleagues, Hannah White, has been doing a lot on sort of bullying in Parliament, particularly of you know, both Commons and, and Lord staff, but also... Uh, also, researchers have difficulty to ease to do it. Do you get the sense that actually has behaviour improved since uh, since you know it became more acceptable to sort of be calling people out on these sorts of things? In all honesty, no, no, um, because politicians still aren't really held to account for their behaviour. And I think when the Me Too movement um, hit Westminster in winter like two years ago, two years ago, three years ago, um, there was definitely a sense of hope among staffers. We kind of thought, 
great, you know, like here's our chance to shape Westminster, you know, make politicians accountable for their behaviour and, and not just politicians but anyone in Westminster who behaves inappropriately. Um, and so a lot of us were quite riled up and excited. And then nothing happened. And, you know, there would be big stories in the news, but then you'd see people back in the cabinet, you'd see them walking around, they've still got parliamentary passes, they're still MPs, they're still journalists. And now, um, like, you know, when I speak to other women and other people in parliament, um, I don't think there's anyone who really feels like things have changed. I think. Um, M like MPs and whoever else in Westminster will make jokes about how, um, oh, you know, I can't I can't go for coffee with you by by myself in case I get called a sex pest, and like people people make jokes about um, me too more often than they take it seriously. So. Yeah. Isn't that the thing as well? I think what was really symptomatic of actually the kind of darker side of Westminster's obsession with gossip was when I feel like we were, yeah, as you said, we were making some progress, you know, some people were being named and, you know, we're talking mm. about, you know, kind of big wall changes, everything. And then there was, ooh, there's a spreadsheet with names, you know, that yeah. came out and suddenly everyone became obsessed with that. And actually I thought the spreadsheet was really weird because you'd have like reading it, you'd kind of get whiplash because that one line would be, oh, you know, an MP who was single, was going out with another MP who was also single, mm -hmm. and then you go from that to an MP forced like, an underage girl to have an abortion. Um, and it was, so, I, so, you know, the spreadsheet was kind of very, very yeah. weird. And everyone just went into that and said, you know, who really wrote the spreadsheet? Is that, that stuff true? Is XMP actually yeah. gay? Whatever. And then, you know, and then we sort of did that for three weeks, and then Me Too disappeared. And I think, you know, and I'm yeah. sure you could as well, but like the amount of MPs I could name, where I thought, you know, finally that person yes. will get named or start behaving the way they do. Um, and then no, it didn't happen because we just moved on. Because yeah, uh, because yeah, it was just the spreadsheet. So I think it, it is, and that nearly comes back to your question, Jonathan, in a weird way of occasionally the kind of temptation to just lean on the funny gossip side um, kills potential serious conversations. Jonathan, I'm quite interested in how um, how I mean, Daniel was asking about social norming. How the fact that you sort of instantly get every political correspondent reacting. You know, if you watch Prime mm. Minister's Question, I don't watch Prime Minister's Question, but I do watch Twitter on Prime Minister's Questions to know, because I can't bear watching it, but I do like watching the reviews come in. And then, you know, you get people sort of pouring out their views, but they're quite similar assessments from, you know, obviously there's a bit of political things. Kevin Maguire's probably going to say mm. something slightly different to Harry Cole or Tom Newton Dunn or whatever. But, you know, is there a tendency that political correspondence comes sort of too instantly to a similar judgment about was that a success, was it not, and stuff, because they just so obviously see everybody else in real time making their judgments? No, it, it, it is striking, and that, and that does happen. And, and the, the, the thing about Twitter is that you just see it, what was happening before in, in private, in, mm. just in, in mm. real time, which I suppose is a more honest and open way of doing it. It's, it is peculiar. Though, and, and it's, it, is, it does feel just maybe slightly sociological because, like, the, the, I, I'm, I have a lobby pass. I'm technically mm. in the lobby, but I don't mm. have an office in, in Parliament. Mm. And the, the offices are just in, in one big corridor, and they're they're sort of next door to each other. And the, 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 the people refer to sort of colleagues who work mm. rather than sort of rivals who work for uh, uh, other newspapers. And so it is just a nat almost a natural tendency that if you do just spend all day, every day, with the same group of people, you might end up thinking the same as them. Mm. Mass group think. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, de yeah. That's, de that's definitely true. It has a, which is a, I don't know if it's, I don't know if it's, well, it's clearly not unique. Mm. The White House people sit mm. in the same 
fast people, but it's a mm -hmm. tend to form judgments mm -hmm. in a kind of herd rather than. Mm -hmm. Yes. Dave, yeah. needs a, <clears throat> Dave needs a lawyer and poet. Um, uh, gossip, as it relates to individuals, um, have a negative connotation. And in the past, it has brought down politicians, lots of politicians. Um, but in, and, and maybe in the past, people would seek to suppress gossip to you know, maintain their political futures. Now, in the recent past, we've seen personalities rise to the highest office of power. And those personalities, uh, both in the US and UK, have been the most talked about. Mm -hmm. And the chatter about them hasn't necessarily been good. It's good and bad, I suppose. Mm -hmm. But it's just they get the most volume of gossip about them. So do you think we're now in an era where, um, where go gossip is now more a force that encourages um, sort of personalities who are most talked about to actually rise up the political scale? And do you come across people who maybe even actually encourage the gossip about themselves, good or bad, to increase their profile? I think that's a really interesting question, because I think it's an interesting question about, you know, is being talked about just, you know, is all publicity yeah. good publicity? If you're a politician, that sort of, you know, gets you name recognition, always sort of interesting if you, you know, how few politicians actually have any name recognition. Clearly, mm. our current prime minister scores very high on that. Mm. But I'm also quite interested about the sort of extent to which the sort of fact that, you know, details your personal life or whatever can be part of the sort of currency deters. I think Isabel Hardman wrote a book about why we don't get very good politicians and, mm. you know, people who are deterred perhaps from, you know, living in this sort of bubbly life and exposing whatever. So. Just sort of quite interested as we sort of finish up, let's go down the panel and give Marie the last word. Is gossip, you know, if you're a politician, is it forced for good or bad? Better to be talked about or not talked about? And is it, uh, is it more generally in the public interest a force for good or bad? Matt? I would say um, the answer is, um, is it, the answer to the second part is it depends what the outcome is, if it's, you know, kind of like just normal tradecraft of people gossiping who work in politics, that's fine and that's a kind of completely necessary way that people in all bits of Whitehall and Westminster will, will and have done that since time immemorial. But the answer to the first part is I think really important, as well as the other stuff we've mm. talked about, about how information gets out to the mm. public and is the lobby system the right one and, and what implication does that have for, for example, as Tara's been talking about, people who work in Parliament, researchers. And, but the specific question about does it deter people um, Weirdly, it, I think it probably does. Actually, I think that's a really acute question you've asked. Um, like at the minute, there it's clear that the norms have shifted, um, possibly without us knowing it. Um, where you have, you know, a very, a very particular kind of prime minister and a very particular kind of president in the U.S. who are, you know, performative about, in a sense, their strangeness and their uniqueness <laughs> in a way that is like. You know, breaks a lot of the rules about political communication mm. and about presentation that we've taken for granted. For and ages. about personal standards. And about personal, about personal standards, and about you know, people's both their personal lives, their personal appearance. You know, using personal appearance as a as a as a sort of tool of distinction and and, and you know, and carving out an image for that. You know, based on that and kind of wearing it in plain sight. Really, that the fact that you're different and distinct and that you're 
holding yourself to different standards, that I think probably does deter people who are um, not just more reserved. I mean, we've probably had the, the most reserved mm. prime ministers of all time who's just <laughs> left off, possibly to a slightly you know, reserved to a fault, I would probably argue. Um, but in general, I think people who have perhaps a, more, a slightly more well-balanced relationship with um, themselves as a performer, all politicians mm. are and have to be performers because they talk for a living, um, but people who have a slightly more ba well-balanced relationship between themselves as performers, as public entities, their families, their friends, you know, even just their, their, their desire to, to, to be in pubs in Westminster or Strangers Bar or IFG drinks receptions with the best will in the world every night of the week rather than just at home with their families or in the pub with mm. their other mates who aren't working in politics, I think it probably does change the, change the, the, the calculation and change the standards for people who as Isabel Harbin's written in her book, who mm. might otherwise be interested in getting into and in getting involved in politics because they're interested in they're passionate about education, they're passionate about whatever. Tara, force for good, force for bad. I think it depends on who you are. Like if you look at how Boris Johnson has, you know, succeeded despite all the gossip and, you know, some really serious allegations about him. Um, but then you look at how Diane Abbott was treated when she made a mistake counting something on TV two years ago and I you know still when I see you know family and friends and you know people in Westminster they still bring that up yet someone like Boris a you know posh white guy who went to Eton he gets away with it so I think um, I think some people are excused and some people some people benefit from the gossip culture a lot more than others um, and yeah if you are a, not to sound you know like the cliche feminist here but if you are a straight white guy who is very privileged, you are going to benefit from people talking about you a lot more than a black working class woman is. Duncan? Um, whether it's good or bad, I think it can be fine as part of a healthy overall information diet. Um, <laughs> the in moderation? In, in, mod in moderation. Okay, the, the, the example I was thinking of today involved Boris Johnson and, uh, and his brother, and his brother coming out and saying, this man is not fit to be Prime Minister. So I, I spent this week sort of writing a piece about the future. didn't quite say that, to well, be fair. It, wasn't, it said it wasn't in the national interest. It's, 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 it's getting there. It's, it's not a very brotherly thing to say. Um, and so I was thinking, I wrote a piece about the Tory party and, and their, their prospects with their sort of authoritarian turn and giving speeches in front of a policeman. And part of me thought, would I have been better off just finding out as much gossip as I could, possibly could, and saying there's a big bust up coming in the Johnson family? Would my readers have been more informed? Mm. And from some point of view, yes, because I think that's going to play a huge role mm. in any election. That's mm. going to be on every single post across the country. Like, his brother won't vote for him, why would you? And so, you've got, I think you've got to have a little bit of both, mm. but not too much. There is something really important there, but that, and that's a really boring, not to bring it back to the tedious subject that we spent the last three years talking about, but as Duncan was saying, you know, in a, maybe, and I was in number 10 at the time, sort of, in retrospect, maybe in about kind of February 2016, whenever David Cameron was doing his, you know, came back with his deal mm. from, um, from Donald Tusk, um, if people, you know, if the media in Westminster was paying slightly more attention to, um, well, will you know, will John Whittingdale be coming out for no, or will, will you know, will John Whittingdale lose the weapon? Who's up and who's down? Who's going to be? If they slightly more attention paid to, for example, the UK's trade relationship with potential trade relationship with the European Union post post exit, then who knows things might. Things, the, the, the public may have had, a, had slightly more roughage in their information diet. So we've reported Brexit as a sort of issue about the long-term 
you know, economic and political future of the UK rather than I a Tory psychodrama? I think that's possible, yeah. yes. Jill, I think you may, you may put it slightly more succinctly than I did, yes. Marie, last word. Gossip. Good, bad, essential, avoidable... Can I just say read the book to find out? What read the book to find out. No, no, I am actually going to say... No, yeah. Sorry, I was joking. But, um, book. No, no, I, I'm not... So, I think obviously it's a bit more complicated than that, but like... I think gossip is needed in Westminster because uh, you find kind of time and time again mm. that informal uh, networks, informal sort of like sharing of mm. information normally happens when formal channels fail. Um, and that's kind of how people end up being able mm. to do their job. But the word, of ca uh, the word of caution, I guess, I have, which is you know, basically the conclusion of the book, is that social media and kind of internet in general has kind of changed the way information travels in Westminster, how much gets leaked, how much you know, gets out. And on top of that, you do kind of have the like, hyper-polarisation of the political scene in the UK at the moment, and so there's less of the kind of sharing of gossip for gossip's sake, but you know, everything becomes partisan, everything becomes an attack or proof that the other side really is evil, etc., etc., which I do think is an issue because, again, I think at quite a fundamental level, Westminster does need gossip to properly function, and so if we lose that, uh, things I do think will get worse. Okay, well, thank you very much. Thank you very much to our panel. Uh, reminder to read the book. It is available outside to buy. Marie is, I think, prepared to sign it so you have your personalised copy uh, if you want to get it outside. Uh, do join us for drinks because one of the things that the book makes very clear <laughs> is that one of the keys to getting on here is informal networking over drinks in Westminster and the huge big benefit of here over the Clarence, the Red Lion, wherever it is, at the Institute for Government, the drinks are free. <laughs> so, uh, so would you please thank our fantastic panel? <laughs> and go and let the essential oil of Whitehall and Westminster flow freely next door. Thank you very much. Thank you, Marie.